it's an inevitable that we'll start to concentrate on our mental health and well-being the way that we do on our physical health and well-being. Our biggest team here is the children and adolescents mental health team. We are seeing a surge in the numbers of parents seeking help for their children uh, and that we did not expect. Hello, I'm Robert Tame and welcome to Working for Compassion. This podcast explores how using compassion and emotional intelligence can improve people's work lives and create competitive advantage for your business. I'll be asking my guests how we can make the world of work a kinder, more engaging and productive place to be. Tune in to learn compassion tips for yourself and your teams before your people start dropping out. Today, my guest is Mariam Medin. Mariam is the founder and CEO of The Soak, a new style of mental health and wellness clinic located in South Kensington, London. Prior to launching The Soak, Mariam was the founder and managing director of a branding and communications consultancy. In the teeth of the pandemic last year, Mariam made a major pivot launching The Soak that has become instantly successful and influential, serving individuals, families, and corporate clients. In the podcast, we talk about how Mariam has used her branding and communication skills to make the soak a more accessible and aspirational mental health experience. Mariam explains why purpose, authenticity, communication, and trust, packed for short, serve both leaders and employees well and are crucial components in all the parts of our lives. We talk about how she's gained a reputation as the dog lady and why gaining an external perspective from somebody you trust can be enormously helpful when running a business. This was a rich conversation with Mariam who has such a passion for bringing a new positive change to the mental health industry. And there are exciting plans ahead for the soak that we talk about in the podcast. Mariam, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. It's lovely to be here in your premises. We could start by you telling our listeners what the soak is and why you created it. Well, I'm going to touch on... uh, what you mentioned in your your introduction, which is about my previous career. So I worked in branding. I worked essentially in a service industry for many, many years. My, My first job was actually as a waitress. So I was very conscious of the sort of the customer, the user experience in everything that I did. And about 13 years ago, I studied to become a psychotherapist. I studied part time. I was able to take one day off work and I dedicated that to learning more about psychotherapy and so on. And my experience, both as a user and as a provider of psychotherapy, very, very quickly opened my eyes to an enormous gap between what people were expecting as consumers and as clients and what was being provided in this incredibly important sector. And the gap between the conversations around mental health, so there would be a lot of talk of destigmatization and normalization and how mental health problems, such as anxiety, depression, so on, were just part of everyday life. But once you started to seek out help, it was treated very much as if you are a patient, I am the doctor, there is no service involved it is just a process it's a clinical product that you are receiving and I having come from a branding and communication side I just sort of thought this is an enormous um, gap between what we are saying and what people are experiencing so the idea for the soak started 13 years ago 
And then I just sat on it and thought, well, somebody's going to do this. And to my surprise, nobody really did. And a couple of years ago, I thought, well, it was before the pandemic. It was 2018 that I actually thought, this is a full-time job for me now. I'm going to dedicate my life to, to making a change. And we opened last October. And for me, the SOAK is a combination of a mental health service and the branding experiment. Can we get people to engage more with a psychological health and well-being if we turn it into something that's generally much more accessible, palatable, service-led, conscious of what's going on in the outside world, breaking down some of the sort of, I suppose, not barriers, because barriers are always necessary in, in mental health provision, but some of the lines between client, patient, doctor, all of that. And so far, so good. It seems to have been embraced well, the community we're serving. That's very interesting. So we know, just reading the papers and all the facts, that mental health issues are growing, but the SOAK is about making it accessible, providing excellent services, but maybe breaking down people's understanding and using your experience of communication, branding, to just be more welcoming, almost more hospitable than previous operators or other operators out there. Yeah, absolutely. We start right at the beginning. So imagine somebody hears something on a podcast, on radio, wherever it is, and thinks, I know I'd like to talk to somebody, but I don't have the confidence to pick up the phone, or whatever it is that's been holding them back. We make sure that in our messaging, so when they try to find out about us, that we have a warm and friendly and unintimidating sort of voice. And when they pick up the phone to call us, our staff, who is the first line of contact are well-informed, they are able to deal with inquiries, provide some confidence, make the caller feel heard and understood and cared for from that get-go. And then we follow it through all the way. We assume that people who call us often don't know what they need. And I don't mean this in a patronising way. I mean, genuinely, they call us and they say... I I don't know who I should see. I don't know what's the difference between a psychotherapist, psychologist. Questions can be that basic. And we absolutely hold their hand all the way, all the way to the therapy room. They feel like there's somebody there to answer their questions. Sometimes therapists won't answer questions in the therapy room. Often a question will be answered with another question. So in my own experience, I always recall the time when I asked my therapist, how do I know if you're the right match for me? And their response was, why do you feel the need to know? Now, that was a perfectly valid response in the context of therapy and in context of the fact that I generally had an issue with wanting to know the answers to everything before uh, I committed myself fully. But in practical terms it didn't help me in choosing my therapist so we've got a team here whose role is quite simply to answer those kinds of questions to make sure that the client never feels like they don't know something about the process they might not know what's going on in the therapy room in terms of their personal development but in terms of what to expect what's coming what you know how long is it going to take what's it going to cost me All of those things are things that we try to answer to the best of our ability just so they can feel secure. One of the things in particular that was a focus was to get as far away from a clinical service as we could. So no white walls and sort of sterile environments. And the purpose of that was twofold. One was to make people feel like this is mental health could be a lifestyle choice for them. It doesn't have to be about fixing what's broken, but about improving what's already there and perhaps needs a little bit of fine-tuning. And to do that, we wanted to make sure that they didn't feel like they were going into a medical establishment. 
The other part of it was specifically actually to do with young people. I had a lot of friends who would ask me uh, about their teenagers, adolescents, and whether they should take them, you know, usual teenage issues. They would say, should I take them somewhere? I'm afraid that if I take them somewhere, they will then, they will then self-label as being unwell. The environment is too intimidating. It feels like this or that. So there was a method to the madness of creating a place that feels as far from a, a medical establishment, clinical environment as p- possible. We wanted people to feel comfortable. I mean, the, the, the things that we discussed were how can we make it comfortable, luxurious, but also comfortable enough that if somebody walks in and wants to put their feet up on the table, they don't feel intimidated. They can do that, yeah. So the luxury couldn't come at the cost of coziness and comfort and safety. The other thing was we said we want it soft, but we don't want it feminine because we want men to feel as at home as women might. So everything should feel unisex. Mariam, since you opened, coming up to a year, how's it been received? Very, very warmly and enthusiastically. Everybody who has come into contact with us is very positive about the the environment that we've created and, and our approach to mental health. And I think one of the things that, in terms of COVID, that's made a difference to us is that we expected to have to convert a lot of people. We expected to have to spend a lot of time explaining why mental health was important. And we haven't had to do that at all. People became aware of the need for good mental health very quickly after COVID broke. And we have had a lot of people coming to us, I think, not necessarily bringing problems that have been caused by COVID, but having the courage to finally talk about it. And I think that is a direct result of the conversations that have catapulted around mental health in the last 18 months or however long. So the result of of COVID has has really brought mental health to the fore, but given people uh, maybe a bit of confidence and it's been more talked about to actually take some action. On that note, which are the services, because you provide a really broad range of services here at the SOAK, which are seeing the, the biggest demand, the biggest uptake? I think one side that's definitely growing beyond our expectations is the corporate side. And I think that that certainly impacts ad- the adult side because a lot of organisations have suddenly become aware of the need to do something about the well-being of their employees. And that, in turn, has led to a lot of adults who felt perhaps afraid of seeking out any sort of help or talking therapy have thought, well, if my, if my boss thinks it's okay, then I don't need to hide away from it. I don't need this to be my big secret. And so they're seeking out help more directly. But definitely the corporate side, we are doing a lot of leadership training so that in future people know how to deal with a, a crisis should it present itself, how to balance sort of work life. I don't really believe in the concept of work life. I think it's it's life. But how to make employees sort of better aware of their own well-being. And we're training a lot of people how to be aware of their colleagues or perhaps even their superiors' mental well-being and how to deal with things in the workplace. So that, that's been a huge side. At the other end of the spectrum, a lot of young people we cannot keep up with the demand of young people and that I'm going to say children to some extent but certainly teens, adolescents that side of things I think is a direct result of COVID and we are seeing a surge in the numbers of parents seeking help for their children uh, and that we did not expect but 
we now, our biggest team here is the children and adolescents mental health team and we are adding to them on a literally on a weekly basis at the moment well the corporate sector is is very interesting and and it sounds like you've been in touch with quite a few companies it's a general question but how would you rate the psychological health of the UK's workforce as the pandemic starts to recede I think we are all psychologically slightly worn out. I think there's a lot of confusion. People don't even know whether they're happy with the status quo or not. They don't know what the future looks like. So we find that a lot of people are unsure about the choices they're being asked to make or perhaps forcing upon themselves. Do I want to work full time? Do I want to work in the office? Do I want to stay home? I don't know. Which one of them is going to be negatively consequential in the future? I think there's a little bit of fear where people are being asked to make choices without really knowing what's around the corner. And that's not to blame anyone. Employers don't know what's around the corner either. I believe that trust is a huge theme in our lives. If we trust that certain things are going to happen, if we trust the process, if we have consistency, then a lot of security and emotional comfort and safety comes from that. And as a result of COVID, people can't trust what's going to happen. Mm. They can't trust what they're being told because they know that leaders, whether those leaders be in government or in their workplace, they can't make a commitment. How do they know? How could they possibly make a promise? and say that they're going to keep it when they don't know what's around the corner. So I think that's definitely a huge factor in the well-being of people. So that uncertainty Mm. and trust are the key points that are on people's minds. With the work you've seen that the SOAK is doing, is there any method you're looking at helping leaders with that trust element to try and soothe their teams and their employees? Yes, we're actually in the process of developing our own methodology or principle for working with corporates, which is based on a combination of business knowledge. So we've got sort of business execs, senior business execs who've who've contributed to the programme, coaching and also obviously psychiatry psychology and so on and trust is a huge part of it building trust with your employees and I think that what that comes down to is your employees being able to rely on the way that you make decisions so if they say I don't know what's going to happen but I know that for example Mariam or Robert is going to make the use the right tools to make a decision. They will make decisions with compassion or for the well-being of the entire workforce or whatever it is. So long as they know how that decision is is going to be made, then they can slightly relax. I think they want to know ultimately that there will be some sort of compassion in the decision-making process. It doesn't mean that things won't go wrong, but it means that you can walk away from it knowing that you weren't drop from a great height with no regard for for your interests. And, sounds, and that's, that's important. Sounds like compassion and communication are key to that, which, with all your experience in the communication business as well, that's probably serving you well to advise. Absolutely. It's, it's compassion, communication, authenticity, which is really about being able to bring your whole self to work and having it embraced. And that, that I'm not talking about people you know, coming to work with their pyjamas on uh, and being authentic. It's much more about bringing your life experiences. So saying, for example, how I think, what I think, is a product of the fact that I'm an Iranian woman 
52 years old, I was a refugee, you know, I've known what it's like to be homeless and therefore I'm bringing all of that to work and when I'm making a decision or when I'm sitting in a room, my opinion is formed by all of that and actually the people who are part of that meeting with me are allowing me to bring all of that experience to bear. I think that's, that's a very important part and of course purpose purpose is you know it's a buzzword at the moment but helping people to understand what they want and what their purpose is and making sure it aligns with the company's purpose it means that you can end up being an ambassador for your firm because you truly believe in what they're doing and you're investing your whole self in in it and that serves the employee and it serves the leaders of the company, the organization, whatever it is. But those four components, sort of purpose, authenticity, communication and trust, pact, mm. as we call it, crucial. And they're crucial in every part of life. We think that the skills that we impart as part of this sort of organizational development work that we do are things that people can take home, principles that they can take home and say, in my relationship with friends, family, in my family unit, these are the four components that are important and I will practice them at home as much as I do at work. I really like that packed formula and what you talked about, bringing your true self to work. It's something that I believe that during the pandemic, we've seen into people's homes via Zoom. We've, we, we've kind of met their cat and we've maybe seen their children walk through and been able to look at what's on the, on the bookshelf. But through my experience of work, I often see people turn up to work with masks on and we don't see their true selves. Do you think that that is going to change post-pandemic? Do you think that people are prepared to bring their full selves to work, their true selves to work? Well, I think that's the future of business. I think that businesses that don't encourage that are going to be left behind. And frankly, they're going to lose out on so much. I I suppose I'm applying a very broad brush, but I can't imagine a business that doesn't benefit from a variety of perspectives and isn't more future-proof as a result of enabling different perspectives to be vocalised. So if you're not doing that, how could you possibly survive? It's going to become a necessity, uh, not a luxury, to enable people to to speak their minds. The world is changing. Mm. I agree. During my research, I was reading lots of articles that popped up in, in over the last year or so and you said one day you believe having a personal therapist will be as common as having a personal trainer. Why do you think that is going to happen? Well, I mean, the, the last year is testament to the fact that your mental health is crucial to your overall well-being. I think we've had the time, all of us, if we wish to, to exercise and to do things that perhaps in the rat race that existed before, there wasn't time for. And yet, you can't look back and say, oh my goodness, isn't everybody well? Everybody's out exercising. Everybody's out doing... No, it's necessary. You know, your, your mind is the thing that ultimately also drives your feet to jog. So to have neglected it for all this time and to have made it sort of the purview only of the people who think they're ill is insane. And I often use the example of the gym and I say that the people who you will most often see at the gym are the people who you might suggest are the least in need of exercise. They look fit, they, you know, they've got glistening bodies, all of the usual stuff. In fact, what they're doing is they're, they're just making the good better. So what I think is that people increasingly will wake up to the fact that their mind is a, is a similar muscle 
that the more you work on it, the better it'll look and the better it'll feel. And it's an inevitable that we'll start to concentrate on our mental health and well-being the way that we do on our physical health and well-being. I like that, and, and I certainly agree. It's probably coming in the future. What do you think needs to change to get more people to go to the mind gym rather than to the other gym where they lift weights and get on the exercise bike? One of the reasons that we approached the soak the way we did was that it would feel aspirational. And I think that as more and more providers of mental health services embrace that and they stop talking about come and see us if you're broken, but sort of, hey, come and see us whatever, however you feel and let's work on making the good better or the not so good good and, and take it from there, then people will feel less and less that walking into a centre that provides mental health services will be unusual or stigmatised and so on. And it, it, that's all it takes. I think it needs to be treated as a lifestyle product. People need to feel good about saying, I'm off to see my therapist. So a lot of it is down to the way that our industry communicates and acts on the communication. I think that's very important because we've certainly, you know, people have been saying for over a decade now, have been lobbying for a change of image for the mental health industry, but not many people have followed through with changing the way it's experienced. So I hope that we can be one of many in the coming years. We welcome the competition because that means things are changing and genuinely mental health service providers are seeing their role as a provider of general well-being. Yeah, that's something that I hope for as well. I want to shift the conversation on to compassion. Mariam, what's your understanding of the word compassion? It's a tough one, this, I think, because there are so many facets to it. But if I had to summarise, I suppose, or, or water it down to a single sentence, I would say it's about kindness beyond the call of duty. I think the question that comes out of that then is, what is duty? And I'm using very modern standards for determining that, or for saying that a lot of life has become quite transactional. And therefore, I see compassion as that little component that might drive your actions beyond what you're obliged to do in, in a positive way. I think that's what I think compassion is. I'm not sure. I, perhaps it means something different to everybody else. For me, I would say it's, it's about going beyond, beyond expectations and using kindness as the driver. Mm. Yeah, I think there are many interpretations of it, but I think the key word you picked up on there is action. You know, empathy is, is something that we may empathise with somebody, but we're not necessarily going yeah. to help or do, take any action. So that's the key part of compassion. I like your interpretation. Just thinking about compassion, how relevant do you think that is in today's work environment? In completely and entirely, going back to the idea that people have to bring their authentic selves to work, somebody's authentic self may not be your cup of tea, but enabling it to exist and treating it with respect and kindness, I think does require compassion and therefore workplaces have to embrace that as the key to the way that they run things and I heard actually I was speaking to somebody about the conversation I'm having with you today and I said do you have any instances where you can think of a compassionate approach in your workplace and she said that we had a CEO 
she works for a very large pharmaceutical company, and she said, we had a CEO who always referred to various teams in the organization as souls. So he wouldn't say, I have 50 salesmen in the room today. He would say, there are 50 souls here today. And he humanized them. And with just that single word, he changed the entire ambiance, atmosphere, sort of regard that people had for each other. This was the way that my friend described it, and, and it, it, mean, it meant a lot to me, what, the way that she described it. I understood mm. that a single word can turn a, a dry and possibly aggressive environment, because in her particular instance, she said, we were a, a room full of 50 salespeople, and normally it's all about sell, 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 and pushing each other. And he entirely just, he pulled the rug out from under them by referring to them. They no longer saw themselves as a uh, one-trick wonder, which was to sell, sell, sell. They thought about their moral obligations and who their colleagues were and so on. Mm. So I thought that was a very good example. Yeah, I really, um, li- yeah. really like that example. So that's a good example. What about companies that don't buy into this? What, what do you think's holding companies back that maybe see compassion, kindness, mindfulness as a soft skills that are not really relevant in the workplace? Usually a man in a pinstripe suit over the age of 70, I think. I, I, I don't know. I genuinely, I don't know what would hold them back. Dated thinking and unwillingness to evolve. I can't think of any positive reason that would hold people back from showing compassion in their workplace. And I certainly don't think the workplaces of the future are going to be a testament to longevity based on cold, hard business and no soft skills. Yeah, I'd agree. Just thinking about any stories where you've received, you've been actually at the receiving end of compassion at work, in a work situation, and and the type of impact that had on you. I'm very lucky that I've worked in environments where we've had the time and space to build personal relationships, whether with our, whether with my leaders or with the people I work with as, as peers. So I, I would say that I've been on the receiving end of compassion my entire career. But to give you a very specific example, my mother died three weeks ago today, and. I have had nothing but compassion from the people that I work with. And I'm not talking about the therapists who are trained to provide compassion. I'm talking about everybody. I have had attention when I've needed it. I've been left alone when I haven't clearly wanted anybody to come near me. I've had emails saying, you don't need to think about anything. And I actually have been at work every single day since my mother died from the following day. And people have said to me, why? And I've said, because I can't think of a better place to be. I'm surrounded by people who are trained, and and again, I don't just mean the therapist, but everybody here is trained to be compassionate and kind and emotionally intelligent. And it has been the most remarkable healing environment for me. I've I've enjoyed being here. I've enjoyed doing my grieving here because there's been an enormous show of sensitivity and understanding and time. People have given me time as I've needed it. And humour. All of the things that matter to me have been present here. So I'm exceedingly lucky to, to have a place where I can be not my best self and still be supported throughout it. Wow, that's wonderful. I just want to ask you about moving from running your branding and communications agency into where you're working now, which is it's quite a big transformation on the outside. What have been the, what have been the main challenges in that transformation? 
I would say that for me to learn how to manage people in this environment has been very different to the way I did it when I had an agency that had a purely commercial focus. And I've done it wrong on numerous occasions. I now see what a terrible leader I was before, I have to say, because there are styles of communication that I've learnt in just the last year that have made an enormous difference to who I am as a person. I don't think I was a terrible boss before, but I had... that It was much more of a hierarchy. Here there isn't a hierarchy, and I'm very proud of that sort of culture that we've created here where everybody's voice matters. But that was a learning curve. I had to understand that before you tell somebody they did something wrong, you need to investigate why, and you need to spend time with them and understand what's going on with them and so on. That was not something that I naturally did. Uh, I used to just go to the problem and say, this is a problem, you caused it, why did you cause it, let's fix it. So there was some element of sort of, let's learn from this and move forward. But there wasn't a lot of investigation into what was going on with them personally or anything like that. That's made a huge difference. So that investigation prior to making that kind of decision yeah. is, is something that you've picked up in, yes. this, in this environment. And how do you communicate that to you know, new people coming into the business? Is that now part of the culture? Very much part of the culture. I think that by virtue of the, the sector that we're in, the natural question in any scenario, whatever is going on, is what's going on with you. So people who work in this sector, they will often sort of say, ah, this terrible thing has happened. Let's see what's going on with you, rather than what the hell happened there. So I'm learning from them. I've been in the mental health industry for a lot shorter period than many of them have. So I found that it hasn't need... I, I have been, I've been told off by people here regularly, and I'm learning to modify my tone and to ask more questions, more meaningful questions before jumping to a conclusion. Interesting. So, what's the hardest part of running this business? Exactly the same answer. It is, yeah, people, managing people's expectations, emotions, whilst also being aware of my own and trying to do the right thing whilst also getting a business off the ground. It's a balancing act, but I think we've got it right, and it's a testament to everybody who is here that we're all pulling in the same direction. So we're now learning how to be more efficient in resolving issues and differences and opinions, and it's now the wheel is turning very smoothly. I'm going to say it's been my challenge more than anybody else's. I've had to change the way I approach business more than perhaps others who've been in this sector for the last 20 years have had to adjust. Post the pandemic and, and talking about the current landscape of, of work, what are the qualities a leader needs to be successful today and in the future? I think a leader that is always open to learning is very important because we will get older and other people will come along and have something to teach us. That's certainly been my experience. So thinking that you are now the leader and therefore you know it all is a huge mistake. Dedicating as much time to the people of the business, knowing the people of the business, is the magic dust because ultimately they are the people that will make your business successful. Does that include knowing them Obviously, their work performance, but no, more in a 360. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Work is just part of it. How they do their work is based on who they are, what their experiences are, what's going on for them at home. And it is possible to know a lot of people that work for you. I don't buy into the fact that, you know, I've got a huge company, I can't know anyone. Nonsense. I've spoken to various leaders and... The most successful ones are the ones who 
don't create a division between themselves and their staff. Somebody that I, I know runs a, an incredibly successful company in the financial sector. He is the only one amongst the partners who doesn't have his own office. He sits with everybody else. And as a result, he knows everybody. They care about him. They have a problem, they come to him. He's approachable. And he is really beloved by everybody that he works with. And all of that is a result of him not having an office with a, a door that he can close. He sits there, he uses a meeting room if he needs privacy, but it's few and far between where he will sit in there by himself. Ordinarily, he will sit amongst people and he'll solve problems by talking to his colleagues. And that, to me, is a very good example of good, solid leadership. So it's that getting to know your people quite intimately, keeping on learning, keeping an open mind. Is there any other, any other qualities? Humour is helpful. It certainly served me well. It's got me out of some dodgy situations and, and helped some uncomfortable ones. Obviously, you have to know the boundaries, and I've learnt that as well. But I would say humour is very, very helpful in any situation, but particularly as a leader. It's amazing how much more people sort of trust you and want to be around you if they know that you're not going to be surly and business-like and whatever those terms mean the whole time. I so much agree with you yeah. that you have to bring that to work and, you know, not take... Sometimes we can take ourselves and others too seriously. Yeah, um, absolutely. Great. Just thinking about yourself personally, you know, setting up businesses isn't easy. What helps you personally get through pressurised times and when there's challenges? I talk a lot to people who I trust. I, in that sense, it's, I, I'm not somebody that tries to solve it in my head by myself. I try to trust my instincts, but I'm certainly open to the thoughts and the guidance of people whose ideas and whose leadership are an example and an inspiration to me. I want to, often one has to be told what's the right thing and the wrong thing, both personally and for business, because sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees. And an external perspective from somebody that you trust can be enormously helpful to, to untangling knots and to putting you on the path to at least knowing what you need to do to solve the conundrum in your own head. I think that's something that's very helpful, that somebody sort of says, right, here are the things in front of you. That's what you need to think about. Now go off and make the decision yourself. But these are the considerations that are relevant at this point. I had somebody say to me, somebody who I do turn to quite often, will always use the same starting point to everything. Will say, is that what was said or is that what you heard? And that immediately helps you just get some perspective and realise how much of this is stuff that I'm bringing and how much of it is actually the problem that's on the table. Th facts, not thoughts. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's good advice. I, I try and use that. And is there anything else that you do, you know, just to manage your own mental health, your own self-compassion? Well, I've, I'm known by my colleagues here and pretty much everybody else who, who knows me as the mad dog lady. So I lost my own dog about two years ago and now I have a thousand dogs because everybody who's got a dog wants me to either look after them or be with them uh, and take them off their hands, frankly. And I have found that when I am with animals, I am my best self. I feel in control. I feel relaxed. I feel like all the good parts inside me come to the fore. And it is the most relaxing thing in the world. So I literally go out of my way to organize time that I can spend with other people's dogs. I borrow them, I take them home, I play with them, I cuddle them, I take them for a walk. And that's really helpful to me. 
I've also recently discovered, literally in the last few days, that it's true that if you switch off the TV, it will help you enormously to sort of just find some equilibrium. So that's also, that's a new thing for me because I normally, I will go home, I will switch off and I will switch on the TV or, or read or whatever, iPads. And I just, the, for, for five days, I didn't do that. And I came to work. It's a Monday today. I came to work this morning feeling more refreshed than I had done in a very long time. Lots of dogs, lots no of dogs. TV. Yeah, lots of dogs, no TV, no news. You, you'll end up not knowing what the hell's going on in the world, but it doesn't matter for, for a few days just to, to recharge your batteries. Great. So we're coming right to the end now, but just wanted to take you back. You, you mentioned about the leader who you know, refused to have an office but sat amongst his team, which sounds like a really positive thing to do. Are there any other leaders that you've read about or you know that really seem to be leading with compassion? I, I tend not to look... I don't know if this is your question, but I, I, if it is, the answer is that I don't look to people that I don't know for inspiration or to almost sort of indirectly model myself on. It's people that I know who do whatever they do with, you know, they don't necessarily have to be at the very, but who've demonstrated their ability to make rational decisions whilst using kindness as a central sort of theme. And there are lots of those. I work with people who think that way and, and they are an example to me <coughs> for the right way to do things. <coughs> we have a, a chair lady who, for me, is the model for good business and good humanity, if that's the right way to phrase it. I think you know her, Robert. And she is certainly... I, I, I look at the way that she does things and I think that's who I want to be when I grow up. Uh, she always, always will regard the person first or in conjunction with what they are doing. And I think that's incredibly important. I'd agree with that. And that I had everything on the and and therefore I felt I was in the right and therefore that would see me through. I'm sure there are lots of con- situations where the the good guy doesn't win. So I'm I'm not here to say that's the right method for everybody because sometimes it doesn't turn out the way it should. But I'm I'm grateful that it did for me. Mm. So am I. So last question what single thing could be done to create a more compassionate work life for you and a better working world for everyone else. We're going back to compassion now, aren't we? I think seeing seeing each other as as whole people. One of the things that's come out of the pandemic is as you said at the beginning of our talk about being able to see people in their homes and it's been really interesting particularly where we've been doing corporate work where suddenly people are seeing their bosses with a t-shirt on and in one particular instance I seem to recall there was a David Bowie hang, uh, poster in the background which was really shocking for the employees because they'd just seen this one-dimensional person. And suddenly it, it, it transformed their perspectives of him. And I wonder how beneficial that would be if we could all get a glimpse into each other's lives outside the workplace. And I think we can, by asking, by listening, get an understanding of what's going on for each person. Mm. Yeah, I like that and I agree. So finally, can you share with our listeners any future plans for the SOAK and where to find out more information about the SOAK? We are hoping that in 2022 we'll be uh, expanding beyond these four walls to other four walls 
inside and outside the UK. We are looking at having a, a centre that's dedicated purely to children and families, also in London. We are in discussion with other physical health providers to go into partnership so that we can support their work, perhaps from, from their centres. And we're launching in September both a, a separate sort of a sub-brand called Soak Performance, which will concentrate on the needs of professionals. So there'll be an elite division which works with perhaps young up-and-coming stars if that's the right word whether it's sports in business in the entertainment industry so that will concentrate on quite intensive one-to-one work but there will be leadership where we work with senior leaders and then there will be the performance as a whole so organizational work we're also starting work with some schools so soak education will uh, be kicking off in september where we're providing ongoing mental health support to schools. At the moment, we've got arrangements with a couple in London, and we hope to expand that. And that involves, in one case, actually embedding staff to look after the health of the pupils and the staff of a particular school, and also providing some support to parents. And in another case, it's about providing ongoing training to the staff of the school, so that they know what to spot, that they're equipped to handle what's going on, working with pastoral teams. And lastly, we hope that by this time next year we'll be international. So what we're doing here, there's call for in other countries, and we look forward to venturing out as soon as COVID allows. Well, that sounds like we're going to have to do part two uh, of this interview in a year's time I look to catch to up all those amazing plans that sound so sensible as well as and the need for it. You just highlighted so many areas there. That's amazing. Congratulations on Thank you. launching this wonderful centre and I just hope that you can grow it as you're talking about. And, and where can we find out? Details about Soki, if anybody out there wants to Sorry, plug I, in. Our email, or our website address is www.thesoke.uk. Great. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. This podcast also has a website. The address is www.workingforcompassion.com. And that's the number four, not the letter four. On the website, there's more information about how compassion, mindfulness and emotional intelligence is influencing the world of work. You'll also find my story detailing my journey to date and what has motivated me to start this podcast and website. You can also sign up to my newsletter and that will update you when I release new podcasts. It'd be great if you could do that. So why not take a look at www.workingforcompassion.com and yet that's the number four not the letter four I'm going to be releasing lots of new episodes with more great guests over the next few weeks so please sign up to the newsletter and until next time go well